Good morning, everybody. Before I get started with my introduction, I want to thank uh, Jeff and the worship team for a uh, wonderful effort this morning. It just really puts us in the mood to worship, so thank you. Well, it's with uh, great pleasure this morning I'm going to introduce our uh, candidate, Ben Halliburton, and his uh, wife, Olivia, and their son, Javen. Um, and I want to kind of explain a little bit of the process for those of you who uh, aren't quite familiar with it and uh, how it went. But uh, before I get into that, I want to let everybody know that uh, Ben is currently serving at Batesville Christian Church as the Minister of Youth and Family Life. He started there in 2009 while he was in uh, college and then accepted full-time employment there in 2011. Uh, ben is a graduate of Cincinnati Christian University, and he is currently enrolled in graduate-level studies there. Ben was one of many applicants, and I say one of many because I really can't keep track of them. Uh, once you post the job, the floodgates open, and we de- dealt with hundreds of resumes, and it's really, really a cumbersome process to, uh, to review them, do phone interviews, call people, meet them, and that type of thing. So if you really are truly interested in the number of applicants, you can see Erin Walker because she funnels all of the, uh, the work administratively for us. And if you have a chance to thank her, um, she does an absolutely wonderful job. So, um, we actually get separate letters from people who did not get the job offer, thanking them for all of the courtesy and consideration they got and the follow-through from, uh, from Aaron. So she's, a, she's an excellent administrator. Um, but it started with a... Um, um, we, we, we managed ten resumes at a time. And uh, I, sent, uh, I got ten resumes sent to me from Aaron. I sent them out to the guys. I said, hey, I need you to review these ten resumes and uh, get back with me with who we feel the top candidates are. And of those, we picked a pool of, I think, three or four, and we set them all up for our first initial meetings. And at that point, I dispatched the leadership team in groups of two um, to meet with those candidates, just kind of for a fact-finding mission and see what these folks are all about. And uh, actually, Joshua and I went and met with uh, Ben in an evening on, uh, at Applebee's in Fishers. And I had to talk Joshua, and he said, because Ben's from Batesville, and obviously we're from Fishers, and Joshua wanted to, to meet him halfway. I said, well, you know what? He's the one looking for a job. He can come to us. Uh, so we, we brought him all the way up to uh, we brought him all the way up to Fishers. And to make matters worse, if for those of you who might have read his biography online, he's a big Cincinnati Reds fan, and the Cincinnati Reds were playing a playoff game that night, and he had a chance to go to the game, and he passed on the tickets to the game to come to our interview. So when we were there, I said, "Boy, Ben, of all people, I would have understood if you uh, if you wanted to uh, to change the." Uh, the interview date, but uh, even more to his credit, we're sitting in Applebee's, and I'm telling you, if you've ever been in Applebee's, there's a lot of TVs in there, and I'll be darned if the game wasn't on right over my shoulder, and try as I may, I could not catch him trying to catch a glimpse of that game, so uh, we had his undivided attention, but Joshua and I met with Ben for a couple of hours, and um, the process after that called for all of us to, to meet again as a, a group and kind of debrief, hey, what did you think of the meeting you had? Uh, what did you think of the meeting you had? We chatted, we talked, whatnot. And we, uh, Joshua and I agreed that we would like to see uh, to Ben move forward in the process. Step two of the process happened in uh, November. We had a full-blown uh, interview with uh, seven members of the leadership team and Ben sitting right down in here uh, where we got to go around the table and kind of shine the lights on him, the real bright one, and uh, just hit him with questions for a couple of hours. And then we took a chance to, uh, to answer all of his questions and... Um, Again, we were more than satisfied with the way things went, so we asked him to come back in as a what we called a guest preacher. 
not an official candidate as of yet because we've learned a few things along the way not to make people a candidate until you hear them preach since that's a, a, a big part of the job. So we brought him in as a guest preacher. Uh, and if that wasn't enough, we subjected him to uh, dinner at my house. Uh, Kathy and I um, hosted the, uh, the leadership team and Ben and Olivia at the house. And for two hours they had to, uh, to see what it was like to socially hang out with a group of dysfunctional people. And that was not enough to scare him away. So he showed up to preach on, on Sunday morning in December. After he preached, we gave him the opportunity to, uh, to have lunch with the staff and their spouses. Well, let's call it what it is. It's Nancy and Jeff and Mark and Heidi. They, they got, <laughs> trying to make it sound maybe a little better than it is. But they got together for lunch so we could, again, have you know, the staff and the spouses get a chance to, uh, to meet with them. We let Ben fester for a little while, put him on the back burner while the holidays were here. And in January, um, I said, you know what, let's bring him in one more time and Carl and I will drill him for a while. And um, we have different members of the leadership team with different skill sets. And I felt Carl and I had a real good skill set for really hammering Ben and really just finding out if he was interested in this job or what exactly the the status was. So we brought him in and we, we sat in the room over there again for a couple hours, and saying, hey, do you really want the job? This is what it's all about. We, we went through all of the details, um, talked about uh, a few more things, and we still couldn't scare him away. <laughs> so then we really hit him hard. We have a survey, and I forget the authors of the survey, but Joshua could tell you if you're really interested. It's 55 questions um, to dig deep into his beliefs, thoughts, faith, uh, and that type of thing. So... Uh, he spent some time and energy on the 55 questions. He gets them back to me. I get them to the leadership team. And then we see if we have questions about the questions. Uh, so, yeah. So at that point, uh, and again, Joshua, who's a little more kind-hearted than I am, made an effort to uh, meet Ben halfway someplace for lunch and go over the questions about the questions. And again, we were satisfied with the way things went. And if that wasn't enough, we ran a thorough criminal and credit background check and we still weren't scared away. And that brings us to Candidating Weekend, uh, where we invited uh, Ben and Olivia and Javen in, and they, um, they're staying down the street. And we brought them in on Friday night to kind of get accustomed to the, uh, to the area a little bit. And then uh, Saturday uh, afternoon, they were made available to, uh, to the congregation. And then to, again today, um, after Ben preaches, we invite you to stay after for, uh, for refreshments. We know there's a small football game, but that doesn't start till 6.30. Um, so we encourage everybody um, um, to stay afterward, um, enjoy the fellowship, and um, just try to interact some with uh, not only Ben and Olivia, but the fellow uh, congregants. Um, I do appreciate the large turnout today. Um, it may not seem large to some of you, but it's much larger than we typically get. Uh, thank you to Nancy for doing a wonderful job getting the communication out there so that you knew something special was going on this weekend. So if you have any questions at all about the process, it is a... Uh, it was four months long. Um, it was, we feel, very detailed. Um, we feel we did not leave any stones unturned. Um, but we invite you to ask us about it. If you have any questions at all, you can see myself or, or any one of the, uh, the elders. But uh, I want to thank you again for coming this morning, and uh, I want to introduce our uh, candidate, Ben Halliburton. Well, um, honestly, I'm already exhausted uh, <laughs> just hearing all that stuff. And uh, I think, man, did I actually do all that stuff? But um, 
As Craig mentioned, um, do I need to fix something? Am I good? Okay. As Craig mentioned, um, I came back here in December and got to meet a lot of you uh, when I preached that weekend. And uh, Olivia and I, like Craig said, have been at Batesville Christian Church for about four years total, coming up on four years. And in my time there, I worked with children and youth and families and then preached on occasion when, I, you know, when we needed a preacher. And um, over that period of time, it really became clear to us that preaching was what we felt called to do and something we enjoyed, something uh, that we found a lot of fulfillment out of. And uh, Batesville was very supportive of that, and so we started thinking about it and praying about it, and we didn't know when that opportunity would come or where it would come, but we would just be ready for it when it did come. And uh, we saw the opening back in late September and thought it might be a good fit. And so here we are. And then when we preached in December, um, that weekend just really cemented in our minds the, the hospitality that we experienced, the, the friendliness and the acceptance that we experienced just really cemented in our minds that this was the type of place that we would want to be. And uh, we're thrilled about the possibility of being here. And we have no doubt that God can do some great things in this community through this church. And we want to be a part of it. Um, and, and we're excited about that possibility. And we're honored to be considered uh, for that possibility. So thank you again. But uh, this past week, if you were on the church website, you may have read a page that had some information about us, um, had some information about our interests and skills and personalities and, and senses of humor and that type of thing. And as you were reading that, you may have come across a question and the question was, what is something people may not know about you? And my answer and my default answer for whenever I'm asked this question is that when I was in high school, I was the mascot at my high school's football games and basketball games. And we were the Connor Cougars. And so I got on a Cougar costume and would always go out and have fun and everything. And it was a blast. And I mean, we can't all be the star quarterbacks. And I remember there was one week when it was a Friday night at a football game. And I just want to ask, does anyone know the cardinal rule of mascotting? Don't take your head off. And that's actually, that is the cardinal rule, even if you don't wear a costume, don't take your real head off either. But don't take your head off. And I remember I was standing behind the locker room before the football game or at halftime or something, and a photographer from the Cincinnati Inquirer caught me with my head off. And I thought, you know what, no big deal. I mean, it's fine. I wake up on Saturday morning, and I was on the front, the front page of the sports section of the Cincinnati Inquirer, standing there with a cougar costume on from neck down and random regular person head. And so it was really awkward. But I bring that up um, because being a mascot and being at Super Bowl Sunday, I thought football would be a good place to start. And when I was in kindergarten, or really little, I played flag football, and I hated it. I, I, I had no desire to play. I didn't know what the rules were. I never got the ball. I hated all my teammates. Like, I, I just didn't have any desire to play. And so I played that one year. I stuck through it that one year, and then I quit. And I just decided, you know what? I tried it. I gave it a shot. It didn't work. I'm not going to play anymore. So I quit, and I didn't play until about eighth grade. And when I was in late elementary school, I kind of started watching football on TV, and I started watching the NFL and college and stuff, and I started understanding the game. And I started understanding the rules and how it works and what you're supposed to do. And when that happened, I thought, you know what? 
I was little back then. I didn't get it. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't like it then. I bet I'll like it now. And so I decided to start playing football again in eighth grade. And so I talked to my parents, and I talked them into buying the helmet and buying the pads and buying the equipment. And they spent all that money, and they told me, you know what, you can play again, but you can't quit under any circumstances. Like, if we're going to pay all this money, you better not quit. And I said, Mom, really? You think I'm going to quit? And so I went to the first few practices. We had two-a-days. And like three practices in, it became really clear to me that, okay, I'm way in over my head. Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I was, I was an idiot. I shouldn't have done this because I didn't have the strength that those guys had. I didn't have the speed those guys had. I didn't have the instincts those guys had from all those years of experience playing. And I just got beat up, like bad. I just got knocked around. And so it got to the point where I started thinking, okay, I got to get out of here. Like, I, I got to get out of here. And so I started faking a couple injuries. And then at that point, I convinced my parents to let me quit. And they were like, you know what? If you want to quit, fine, quit. And I thought, great, I'm out of the woods. But then they said, well, here's the thing. If you're going to quit, you have to be the one to turn in your helmet and your pads and your equipment. And I was like, okay, I can do that. And so I remember one day after school, we had to go to practice, and I had to make the shameful walk in front of everyone with my helmet in my hands and my pad in my, pads in my other hands, and I just had to turn in the stuff to the coach in front of all the other players, in front of all the parents and stuff, and they were all looking at me and thinking about how much of a wuss I was, and it was just totally humiliating, and I hated it, and I don't know why it didn't last. But as I look back, the more I think about it, I kind of have started to discover why I think I didn't last. And I think the reason is, is because I never had the right motivation in the first place. Because even though I had kind of started liking football more, my main focus was, hey, I'm in eighth grade, I'm going to be in high school soon, if I want to get a pretty girlfriend, I better play football. (laughs) And so that's why I started playing, I wanted to be popular. And my motivation just wasn't the right motivation I needed to have. It wasn't because I loved the game. It wasn't because I appreciated the camaraderie and the sportsmanship and that type of stuff. I just did it for selfish reasons. And because of that, I didn't last. And I think what often determines the results of the goals that we set set for ourselves and the aspirations we have, a lot of times what determines our success is what our motivation is. What's the reason we're doing it in the first place? Because when things get hard... If we're not doing something for the right reasons, there's a good chance that'll come to light. And I think the same can be said for a lot of areas of life, but I think it can be said of our faith, too. You know, God wants us to obey him. God wants us to follow his son. God wants us to care for the poor. God wants us to uh, give to the church financially. God wants us to develop accountability and fellowship, and he wants us to utilize our spiritual gifts, and he wants us to do all that stuff. But even more important than just doing that stuff, he wants us to have the right motivation. He wants us to have the right heart behind what we're doing. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17 say, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So the actions are important. But what's even more important is what's the motivation behind them. You can do a lot of good stuff, and that's great, 
But if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, is it really worth it? And so then that begs the question, what's our motivation for following Jesus? Why do we choose to follow Jesus? And I think there are right reasons and there are also wrong reasons to follow Christ, to put our faith in Christ. And we're going to look at that today. So if you have a Bible with you, open up to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 57 through 62. Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. And I'm going to start off by just reading verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. So this guy comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to jump on board. And the thing is, we don't know where this guy comes from. We don't know what his background is. We don't know who he is. All we know is that he comes to Jesus. He approaches Jesus and says that he wants to follow him. And so the question needs to be asked, why would this guy want to follow Jesus? We don't know much about him. But can we maybe speculate a little bit on why this guy would want to follow Jesus? And I think there's a lot of reasons this guy might want to follow Jesus. Number one, he might want to follow Jesus just because he was really impressed with some of the stuff Jesus did. I mean, in the same chapter, we see Jesus feed 5,000 men, not including women and children, with basically nothing. And he feeds thousands of people. That's pretty cool. And then on top of that, earlier in the same chapter, Luke chapter 9, he heals this young kid who's got this demon, this unclean spirit in him that's causing him all this physical pain and emotional pain and suffering, and Jesus heals this kid. And those are two pretty impressive things. And if you're this guy, and you've been in town for a few days, and you've seen some of this stuff happening, you're probably thinking, you know what, he's a pretty cool dude. That's the kind of guy that I want to associate myself with. Because if I get associated with him, then maybe some of the hype and some of the fame that he's getting, maybe I can be a part of his entourage. I can be a part of his posse, and I can kind of be in the group. Maybe even I'll be associated with some wealthy people or some powerful people if I'm seen with this guy. You never know. He does these cool things, and this guy is thinking, you know what, I might want to jump on board with that. That's pretty impressive stuff. And, you know, taking it one step farther, not only may he have had the motivation of, I just want to be associated with this guy who can do this cool stuff, maybe he was thinking, you know what, I want this guy's power to rub off on me. Maybe if I spend some time with this guy, I'll learn how to do this stuff. And I can be the one who's performing miracles. And I can be the one who gets all the fame. And I can be the one who has the followers. Maybe. After all, I mean, it's not unprecedented in Scripture for that attitude to exist. In Acts chapter 8, there was a magician named Simon, and Simon sees the apostles Peter and John heal a guy, and Simon immediately goes up to them afterwards and says, Hey guys, I saw you do that. That's pretty cool. Here's some money if you can teach me how to do that stuff. And Simon's probably thinking, you know what? I'm a magician. I make my living off of doing cool and impressive and unexplainable things. Maybe if these guys can teach me their ways, it'll be good for my business. There's a motivation there. And so I know those are two kind of bad motivations, but I have one more that may apply to this guy that isn't quite so malicious, and that's this. Maybe the guy is just looking for purpose. I mean, maybe he's just looking for meaning. 
Maybe he wants to follow Jesus because he has no idea where his life is going. He has no idea what his future holds. And so he just decides, you know what? Here's the next opportunity that comes through town. I'm just going to jump on board. It'll give me something to do. It'll get me out of my parents' house. It'll give me something fulfilling. It'll give me a calling that's bigger than myself. Maybe that's his motivation. And we don't know, ultimately, what the guy's motivation was. Maybe it was a good motivation. Maybe he genuinely wanted to follow Jesus for the right reasons, or maybe not. Maybe he just wanted to follow Jesus because he did some cool stuff, or he wanted that power to rub off on him. Ultimately, we don't know what this guy's motivation was, but I do think we can gather a little bit of information based on how Jesus responds to him. Because if you look in verse 58, continue on in our passage, we read this. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And, you know, I read this passage and I kind of have to wonder, is Jesus kind of gently telling this guy, kind of gently warning the guy, you know, hey, look, I know you say you want to follow me and that's great and I want you on board. I want you to be a part of this. But just so you know, I mean, this might not be all it's cracked up to be. I mean, yeah, it looks pretty cool to be famous. It looks pretty cool to have followers. It looks pretty cool to do all this cool stuff. But keep in mind that I can't even guarantee you that you're going to have somewhere to sleep tonight if you follow me. Are you really sure that that's what you want to do? Are you really sure you're in this for the right reasons? And we don't know what the guy says. We don't know what his response is. It's not recorded in Luke. And ultimately, we don't know what happened to him. He kind of just falls off the scene in this passage. We don't hear from him again. You know, maybe he said, okay, Jesus, I get that. It's not always going to be fun. It's not going to be all just, you know, awesome all the time. But I'm in. I'm going to follow you. And if we don't have somewhere to sleep tonight, well, that's just part of the package. Maybe he said that. Or maybe he said, you know, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought about that. I hadn't really thought about the whole hardship and and, and discomfort thing. Um, Good luck. Let me know when you're back in town, but go on ahead. You know, I'll be praying for you, but I don't want to be a part of this. We don't know. But Jesus makes one thing clear to this guy who wants to follow him, and that's this. Following him isn't always going to be easy. It's not always going to be glorious. It's not always going to be attractive. It's not always going to be sunshine and roses. Things are going to get hard sometimes. And that changes the guy's response. Because his motivation may not have been the right reason. And if it wasn't the right reason, those hardships, those struggles, those challenges, eventually they might expose them. And so ultimately he just elects to back out. To just drop out and let Jesus go on about his way. And so while we don't know what this guy's situation is, we can know what our situation is. And so that begs the question, why do we want to follow Jesus? Why is it that we follow Christ? What are our motivations? And I think there are right motivations and wrong motivations for us to follow Christ. And I'll admit it, when I first became a Christian back when I was like a junior in high school, I followed Jesus or I placed my faith in Christ just because I didn't want to go to hell. Like, that's it. That was my only reasoning. It wasn't because I loved God. It wasn't because I trusted what the Bible had to say. It wasn't because I knew I needed forgiveness. 
all I knew was, if I place my faith in this guy, I go to heaven. If I don't, I go to hell. I'll take it. I'll put my faith in him. I'll take that risk. And, you know, looking back, that is not a motivation to have. Because following Christ is not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not the reason that we should be following him. And luckily, that didn't stay my motivation forever because I had people who were guiding me and praying for me. And so I'm glad that those people were there because I think if we have that motivation for following Christ, if the main reason we follow Christ is just to avoid punishment, there's two things that could happen to us. And that's this. Number one, chances are that we're not going to last in our faith because there will come a point where our dislike for God It's just going to become too great. If we live our lives thinking about nothing else besides getting away from punishment and getting away from wrath, we're going to picture God as some cruel monster who takes pleasure out of punishing people. And that's not what God is. So chances are we're going to lose our faith because of that. We'll eventually grow to dislike God. And secondly, it's dangerous because let's say it is your motivation and let's say you do remain a Christian. The problem there will be that you'll become bitter and you'll be an angry Christian. You'll be a Christian who presents God as nothing more than a monster. And that's not healthy for you and it's not healthy for the people who you would be presenting God to. Because we cannot just be driven by fear to follow Christ. Now, there is a healthy fear of God. I mean, Scripture makes that clear. But at the same time, that can't be our only motivation. We can't just be following Christ to get out of hell or escape punishment or escape wrath. And if we do, things probably won't end well. And as someone who's been in that position, let me be the first to tell you that if that's your motivation, don't let it stay that way. Discover who God really is. Because God is more than just a punisher. God is love and mercy and grace and justice. Discover that. So why else would we follow Christ? Well, honestly, I think we're tempted to follow Christ, every single one of us, just because we fall into this category sometimes of thinking, you know what, that's just what good people do. Good people place their faith in Christ. And I had a friend of mine in college who his dad was an atheist, had no desire to have anything to do with the church or with God or with Christianity. But his dad paid thousands of dollars to send his kids to a private Catholic school because his dad was thinking, you know what? Yeah, I'm not crazy about the God stuff. I'm not crazy about all the religion. I'm not crazy about the miracles and that type of thing. But I just like that they're going to teach my kids to be good people. I like that they're going to teach my kids to be honest and to have character and to have integrity and serve the other people around them and have a good work ethic. And so that's why he sent his kids there. But Christianity is not just a system of ethics or a system of morals. It's not just a philosophy of how to live a good life. Christianity is a total redefining of why we even exist. Period. And so following Christ just because we like the ethics or we like the morals, that too is not a reason to place your faith in Christ. It's icing on the cake because Scripture does give good ethics and give good morals and right ways to live, and that's important, but that can't be the only motivation we have for following him. Likewise, we can't just follow Christ because we were raised that way. We're faced with that temptation that, you know what, my parents went to church, my grandparents went to church, it was just a part of life, therefore that's what we do. 
that can't be the motivation either. It's not about what you were raised to do. It's not about family tradition. Following Christ is about a personal encounter with him and a personal response to what he did on the cross for us. And our faith can't be based on how our parents responded to that. And our faith can't be based on how our grandparents responded to that. Our faith needs to be based on us taking ownership of our faith, realizing our sin, regardless of what our families have done. That's the point. It's not family tradition. And you know, one other reason, bad reason, that I think we may be tempted to follow Christ that's kind of picking up steam in today's world is that we may be tempted to follow Christ because someone tells us that, you know what, if you obey God and if you trust in Christ and you think positively, you'll be rich. That is not what verse 58 says. Verse 58 says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I don't even have anywhere to sleep. So think about that. What about Job, the righteous man who did everything he possibly could to please God, and yet things didn't always go so well for him? What about nearly every single one of Jesus' original 12 disciples who got killed for their faith? They had faith in God, and yet they got killed for it. And you know, there's a lot of preachers out there who have grown some really big churches and have made a lot of money by just telling people, hey, if you place your faith in him, you're going to get a new car, or you're going to get that promotion, or you're not going to have to deal with cancer, you're not going to have to deal with disease. But the thing is, if that's our motivation, if that's the reason we're following Christ, if we're following Christ because we love the stuff that we think he can get us instead of just loving him, that's an impure motivation. And ultimately we'll be left disappointed because that car that Jesus got you will be outdated at some point. All that stuff that you want to buy, well, eventually there won't really be anything left to buy for all that faith that you put in God. And no matter how much faith you have, no matter how positive you think, eventually your health will fail. It's just part of life. So we'll be left unfulfilled and unhappy if that's our motivation for following Christ. But on top of that, we'll be guilty of idolatry. Because we'll be placing gift above giver. We'll be following God not because we genuinely love him, but because we love some of the things that he can get us. And that's idolatry. And it's blasphemous. And Jesus makes it clear that following him isn't going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. Following Jesus is not going to be easy. It's not always going to be attractive. It's not always going to be glorious, but it's going to be worth it. Maybe not in this life. You might not see the rewards for following Christ in this life, but you'll see it in the next. And that's guaranteed. That's what scripture teaches. It's not always going to be easy, but it'll be worth it. You know, along these same lines in the same chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 9 and verses 23 and 24, Jesus talks about the difficulties and the challenges and the hardships that following him can often lead to. And so reading verses 23 and 24, And Jesus said to all, If anyone were to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And, you know, think about that statement. We hear that a whole lot in the church. And we hear that in Bible studies and things like that. We throw that term around a lot, taking up your crosses. 
But think about what that statement really means. I mean, if you're Jesus and your goal is just to gain a bunch of numbers, that is not the message to preach. His disciples are probably sitting in the background going, stop, don't say that. Don't compare this to taking up crosses. That is not an attractive way to present this stuff. But Jesus does it anyway. And when you really think about it, a lot of these people that he's preaching to, they saw friends on crosses. They saw family members on crosses. They saw the suffering, and they saw the pain, and they saw the humiliation that crucifixion was. And Jesus is saying, hey guys, you want to follow me? Because it's kind of like that. Not exactly the best way to present the gospel if all you care about is numbers. And honestly, Jesus is taking it even one step farther because he's saying, hey guys, if you're going to follow me, it's going to be hard. At times, it's going to be like taking up a cross. At times, it's going to be like being led to your own crucifixion. But here's the thing, guys. It's not just a one-time thing. It's not like you just experience and you die and you're in your past and you don't have to suffer anymore. Following me is going to be like that almost every day. It's going to be a life of self-denial. It's going to be a life of sacrifice. A life of treating ourselves like we're on the cross for the sake of God and for the sake of other people. And that's not exactly the most attractive way to preach the gospel. But that's what Jesus did. Because it's never going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. And that's the point that Jesus is getting across. If you remember one thing, it's that. Kind of closing out our passage, I want to look at a couple other people who are in the same position as as guy number one, who we don't really know what happened to him. But continuing on in verses 59 and 60 of Luke chapter 9. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And, you know, you read this passage and you kind of think, you know what? This guy wants to follow Jesus and all he wants to do is bury his dad. Like, I mean, how, how ridiculous of a request is that? That doesn't seem too unreasonable. He just wants to go to his dad's funeral, right? That seems pretty reasonable. But looking at ancient burial customs in the time of the New Testament, chances are that this guy is actually in two situations, one of two situations. It's not a situation where, hey, Jesus, my dad died 10 minutes ago and the funeral's later today. Can I go? And Jesus says, nope, can't go. Jesus is not saying that. The situation is probably either A, that this guy's dad was really close to dying, and this guy just wanted to spend his father's last days with him before the funeral. So he's saying, Jesus, I understand the urgency of following you. I understand that you want us to place all of our emphasis on that. But just give me a little bit more time to do some things first. Okay? Scenario number two that he could be in is that back then it was really common for a person to die and get buried. And then a year later they would have what was called a secondary burial. And that was when they would take the body out of the original burial and they would move it to a different tomb that was located with friends and family and stuff. And so that's kind of a secondary final burial. The first one was kind of a preemptive burial. And so this guy may be saying, you know what, Jesus, I mean, we do this usually about a year after, you know, our parent dies. It's only been three months. Nine months from now, I'm going to be expected to be back here, to be back here for the secondary burial. So if you'll just give me nine months, if you'll give me some time, then I'll follow you. 
And honestly, either case, it still seems like the guy is trying to do the right thing. I mean, he's just trying to honor his father and mother the way he's always been raised to do. But Jesus is saying, you know what? There are no priorities that come before me. And it's a harsh example. But it's an example nonetheless. Nothing else comes before me. There's no waiting on this. Either you're going to follow me right now or you're not going to follow me at all. And, you know, I think that we often have the same kind of attitude in our culture, especially people my age or people younger. We often use this line of, you know what, I'm a Christian and I'm going to follow Christ, but I just want to have some fun first. You know, I want to go through school and kind of get kind of get all my wildness out and then I'll follow Christ. Or we say, you know what, I'm just too busy right now. I'm trying to start a career. I'm trying to get my education. And so, you know what, I'll follow Christ when I get married and have kids. Because then I'll come back to the church, and I want them to be raised in the church, and so I'll come back later. That's not an option. That is not the kind of discipleship that Jesus presents. It's not discipleship on our terms. It's following Christ on his terms, no matter what that requires of us. No matter what the sacrifices are, that's what following Christ is. Taking up our crosses. No putting it off. Closing out that passage, we see guy number one drop off the scene. Guy number two wants to bury his father. Guy number three, in verses 61 and 62, let's read about him. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Once again, doesn't sound too unreasonable. God just wants to go home and say bye to mom and dad before he potentially gets crucified for following Christ. But Jesus says, nope. There's no turning back. There's no halfway in, halfway out. There's no delaying it. Either you're going to follow me or you're not. And as harsh as it sounds... As harsh as Jesus sounds and as unreasonable as Jesus sounds, we quickly learn that discipleship is not about being reasonable. It's about denying self. It's not about doing what works for us. It's about finding a calling that's bigger than us, no matter what that requires of us. There's no middle ground. There's no halfway. You know, I remember when Olivia was pregnant with our son, Javen, people used to always come up to us and we always heard the same joke. And the joke was, you know, you can't just be a little bit pregnant. And they would always say, you either are pregnant or you're not. And it's the same with following Christ. You can't just be kind of following Christ. You either are or you're not. There was a poet back in the 1970s named Wilbur Reese, and he wrote this poem called $3 Worth of God. I'd like to read it to you. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want about a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. You know, Reese is addressing the issue of people saying, you know what, I want to follow God enough to where I can get into heaven, and I want to follow God enough to where I can avoid hell, but I don't want to follow God enough to where I actually have to sacrifice. I want enough to make me feel comfortable. I want enough to feel like it's a nice glass of warm milk 
or a snooze in the sunshine. But I don't want to follow God so much that I am challenged to treat people differently. That I'm challenged to love people. That I am challenged to do things that I don't always want to do and things that I don't always feel comfortable doing. That was a problem back then. It was probably a problem during Jesus' time, I'm sure. And it's a problem now. People who want to follow Christ just enough to get the benefit without dealing with the hard stuff. The sacrifices, the hardships, the challenges. And that's an issue. Because there isn't an in-between. You know, those who follow Jesus don't just do it because it's a way to be a good person. Those who follow Jesus for the right reasons don't just do it because we think it'll make us rich. Those who follow Jesus for the right reasons don't just do it to try and find something to do or just because it's what they were raised to do, what their parents did. Those who are following Christ for the right reasons are those who are doing it out of no motivation other than love. Period. Love for him. Not love for the things that he gets us. Not love for the things that come as a result of following him. But love for him. Period. Regardless of what that leads to. Regardless of what the results of that are. Regardless of whether or not it makes me popular. Regardless of whether or not I have to take up a cross. I'm going to follow him because I love him no matter what that entails. That's who a follower of Christ is. We don't know if these people fell into that category eventually. Maybe they did. But we do know where we are. Are we following Christ because we love God? Period. Or are we following Christ for some other reason? Are we a church that is making disciples of Christ not because we want people who want to get rich or want people who like our ethics or our morals? Are we developing people who are following Christ because they love God? Period no matter what that leads to? Are we developing people who are taking up their crosses? Are we developing people who are willing to make sacrifices for the kingdom? Because when we do that, that's when followers of Christ are going to be born. That's when communities are going to be impacted. That's when lives are going to be changed. When people get over the whole, I just want to be comfortable complex, and start following Christ regardless of what that leads to. That's what you and I are called to be. Period. And that's the people that our church is called to produce. It might not lead to numerical growth. That's not an easy message. But it's worth it. And we have a guarantee that it's worth it. Because Christ gives us that guarantee. We've got to be willing to ask ourselves these questions. Our church has got to be willing to ask ourselves these questions. Are we presenting, are we producing followers of Christ? And if so, why? How are we doing it? Are we using gimmicks or are we truly presenting Jesus for who he is and just inviting people to love him? That's the question we have to ask ourselves because following Jesus isn't always going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. And, and, and God, even though sometimes it's so challenging and so intimidating to think that we are called to such a responsibility and such a task. God, we have hope in you. We trust in your grace when we mess up. And you've blessed us with your spirit to help us along the way. It sounds scary. It sounds intimidating. It sounds hard. 
but it's more than worth it. Because we love you. That's what we're called to do. I pray that you'll give us that boldness. I pray that you'll give us that courage to put you first, to have no other priorities ahead of your kingdom, and to love you with everything that we are, with everything that we say, with everything that we do. God, thank you for your son. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for him taking our place. Thank you for his life and for his death and for his resurrection. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.